This is East Lansing Insider, brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. In this show, we break down all of the news and happenings in the East Lansing community. And now, today's East Lansing Insider. Hello and welcome to another episode of the East Lansing Insider, a podcast brought to you by East Lansing Info and Impact 89FM. My name is Andrew Graham. I'm here again today with co-host and community correspondent Chuck Grigsby. Chuck, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Pretty good. It's uh, snowy, but I, I kind of like snowy when it's early in the winter. We are also joined today with a, a relatively new member of the Eli team and someone we're excited to have on the podcast for the first time, Al Hargrave. Al, how you doing? I'm doing good, Andrew. Thanks for asking. Awesome. So we've got kind of a grab bag pod today. There's a bunch of news that's, I would say, floating around, but is worth discussing and worth covering, a bunch of which Al has written about. So I want to start first with Al. You wrote a bit of an update and an Ask Eli on the city attorney search. And can you just give us a general overview and idea of where that stands, what's coming next, and what we should maybe expect? Yeah, so to start kind of from the beginning, fall of 2020, um, we saw council vote to end the contract for our previous city attorney. And um, since then, as of October 1st, 2020, Foster Swift has been the new city attorneys or the city attorney. So they um, had a contract for one year, October 1st, 2020 to October 1st, 2021. Um, However, They have not negotiated a new contract with them or anyone else since then. So we are currently seeing them continue to look for a new city attorney. And recently they have said that their new goal might be to, or is to break up the two different roles that a city attorney plays. And one is prosecuting and um, that's all of the aspects that come with, you know, criminal charges that you see in the district court. Um, and the other one is a municipal legal advice, the kind of council, general counsel for our city staff. So um, their goal for the next city attorney is to bid those separately. So our next steps are to see new bids come in. Um, for people from firms who wish to bid either both of those roles or just one of those roles. Um, And I expect that we'll see some answers at the end of December and they probably won't have interviews until the first of the year. Gotcha. It's kind of fascinating to me that there could be two firms as city attorney. Chuck, I'm kind of curious of of your perspective. I know that the criminal justice side of things is of particular interest to you. And in the Human Rights Commission, I know you've worked on a lot of policing issues. And the the specific idea I know, or part of the, I suppose, supposed appeal of having the, the prosecution be its own entity is there can be a little bit more studious care for having data, data being one of the tools and baselines you can use to make reforms and change what charges are being brought, how charges are being pursued, what sort of, you know, thing, just what's going on. I'm kind of curious of your perspective on how that, that bifurcation of the duties and the creation of a sort of specific prosecutor side of the city attorney job could be either beneficial or perhaps detrimental. I suppose it could go either way. 
Yeah, I'm going by what I know, what the history of how it's been set up previously, the dynamic of having one representative or one entity representing both sides, the municipal and the civil. And um, I didn't see too much of a, from my perspective, a need for it to be separated with two entities uh, or two organizations kind of focusing on representation. But I do think it's intriguing to kind of have that focus. I was wondering where it actually came from, Al, in your reporting. I know that they had talked about it in the uh, meeting um, and kind of why they were now thinking it as that being something that would be, uh, they would want to entertain and then really possibly delay the decision-making on how they want to do the RFPs. So from what I understand, they discussed this at the previous meeting and it's just not something that they have actually made the moves to um, put out RFPs for really until what I believe is Brookover suggested not even putting out a new RFP, but just an addendum to this RFP in order to speed up the process at this point, um, since there has been such a delay. So, um, and since I am so new, I really am I not sure when they first began talking about it. Maybe Andrew can speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, it was it was a few months before. It was right around August, just less less than a year into Foster Swift being city attorney when they basically came and said, we can't reach a new contract. We're just at an impasse. And they decided to move ahead and they didn't, I think it was Lisa Babcock, council member Lisa Babcock. I'm not perfectly certain about this, but has pushed the idea. And I know she was the one who really pushed it ahead until Brookover proposed adding the addendum to the RFP. It was really her idea in large part because I know she was also pushing with Foster Swift and Robert Easterly to do a lot of the same kind of data reforms and creating more uniform data and regular data reporting and reporting to council on prosecutions and so on and so forth. I think part of the idea is having a prosecutor or a sort of specific prosecutors and that is their job. It is easier to make a portion of that working and reporting to council. Um, so that is my understanding of kind of the origination of that idea. I'm going to move on. We also want to talk about ARPA funds, the American Rescue Plan Act, which is also something Al reported on. City of East Lansing's getting a little over $12 million, but it doesn't get it all right away. Al, can you take me through yeah. what, what this money's going to do? What, what sure. people in East Lansing might see? I think that's kind of what people are wondering. So they've already received half of the funds, the $12.2 million, and they will receive the second half of those funds in, I believe, May of 2022. So um, our city manager, George Johannes, uh, first introduced a proposal for these funds at the October 12th meeting. City council wanted him to come back with a little bit more refined plans. And so in November, we saw him come back with really what looks like to be about the same plans. There's a few different changes, um, but in October, he was proposing $11.4 million to be spent. In November, he's proposing, you know, he has plans for $12.185 million, um, and he broke it up for the public to see in terms of what is to be spent in 2022 and what's to be spent in 2023. And their next steps, um, the city's next steps, are to get public input. So right now, before moving further, they 
created a web page on their website that the citizens of East Lansing are encouraged to go to to submit their input, um, and that you know includes talking about you you have a chance to basically rank each line item in terms of what's important to you, and then you also have a, a comment section, you know, so you can add any additional ideas or what you think about their current ideas. But uh, everything is broken down pretty pretty well, um, and if you look at our reporting on it, you can see a, a spreadsheet of what's been proposed to date. But one of the most important things, I think, is the homeowner assistance program, and that allocates a million dollars have to be spent in 2022 and have to be spent in 2023 that will help homeowners install a new check valve system to mitigate flooding in their basements. And it's also, you know, it's cost sharing with residents to install these check valves. So um, just kind of taking some of that cost off of residents and it will also be backdated. So if somebody has already done this um, since March, 2021, they can get paid back a certain amount, but that amount is still yet to be determined. So um, I expect to hear more after the, I believe it's December 9th or 10th, December 10th date for public input. And then the next meeting, um, I expect to see them analyze that and really make some moves to see what they're going to spend things on. Right. I, we should point out by the time anyone, if you're listening to us now, the deadline has passed the feedback period. We are recording a couple days before it ends, but we will assuredly be digging into what people have suggested and what people would like to see. I also wanted to ask more about the check valve program because I know a couple times and at different meetings I've been at, it's been suggested that the whole cost should be covered. And it just kind of seems like that point keeps going unaddressed. And the latest one I've seen is that it seems to be a partial cost kind of deal, although no formal policy has been proposed do you have anything more on that or is it still partial no when we asked city staff about it they said that um it's it's partial it's it's we're cautious they're cost sharing with the residents and um they still haven't even determined you know what that cost share will look like in terms of ratios to what the city is going to pay for and what residents are going to pay for so i really don't have anything else to say on that i, I will say that that's a million dollars of the 12.2 million dollars they have proposed um so it's just one line item in there that of about 18 line items right and i know the the estimates for a check valve replacement very roughly is two to three maybe four thousand dollars i mean that's very rough and it depends just curious to get your thoughts chuck i know in our previous pod we talked about flooding and you've had your basement back up just about the cost sharing or the use of the money and what can be done yeah thank you i you know i, I believe that the numbers that are being thrown out there at least particularly for the check valve systems um, and the cost sharing and all that kind of stuff. I think it's a little bit light. And I think it's uh, very modest, if you will, comparatively, you know, this ARPA money um, is designed, you know, to be for long-term investments um, and financial stability of the government and our resources that we have available. And I just think that this is something that um, we should throw uh, as much as we can get away with towards servicing the community and really making sure the community is going to be able to sustain the residents here going forward. So any small thing, which is a small, I think, band-aid to the bigger issues that we have when it comes to our sewer and water overall. So I think this is something that I think is very transformative for a lot of different people. If we can get this thing at least caught up here on the front end, 
um, and then we can address the long-term issues that take quite a bit of time to get done when it comes to our sewer and water overall city plan. So that's kind of my take on it. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more uh, money thrown in that direction from this one-time money that we get from the ARPA. I get that. And I think I kind of, I get your notion with, it's almost like a, a transfusion on the way to the hospital or something. It's, it's a jolt. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of, it's that emergency aid. It ties you over. It's, and then, like you said, address the long-term issue. That's, bit of a grim analogy so i apologize last story of al's i wanted to touch on very quickly al you reported something out of east lansing high school about the national merit scholarship competition and this is lighter news excuse me and something that highlights some of the rather intelligent students at east lansing high school of which there are many yeah so um for the National Merit Scholarship, which is um, something that every senior enters into who has taken the PSAT. We have two commended students from East Lansing High School and four semifinalists. So it's really just recognizing their academic achievements. And um, they should hear, I think, in early February about any finalist status for them. So we are wishing the four semifinalists luck and hope to hear that they move on to the finals um, for the scholarship that would help them in their academic achievements for university for the next few years. Right. Check out that story at eastlansinginfo.news for more along with all of these other ones. And I did also, the, the East Lansing High School story made me, I'm going to take a little diversion from the plan. I apologize, guys. But uh, we also did a recent story about the East Lansing High School students doing a walkout in response to the Oxford High School shooting. So I did just want to mention that and that you can also find that story. And I don't think that should go unrecognized either. So just wanted to bring that to light. The next story we're getting, getting to in the, our grab bag pod of wonder is uh, a story from a few weeks ago now, but something that I think is really fascinating and touched on a very interesting note and a very, I think, important one as East Lansing becomes a bigger sort of more bustling city. And it's about surveillance downtown and the DDA. Basically, the, the context here is the DDA approved a measure to install six new security cameras in downtown East Lansing, mostly along Albert Avenue. They also added one in Sharp Park, and basically the the discussion didn't, the cost was rather insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but the conversation got to the point of when does surveillance stop being valuable in terms of a deterrent and, you know, the ability to find somebody who stole a moped or be able to go and make an arrest for a fight, and the balance of that versus going too far and it becomes a deterrent for people coming downtown and people feeling uncomfortable or people, you know, projecting an image that this is a dangerous area that needs to be surveilled. So Chuck, I wanted to ask you first about this because I think it's fascinating. I think it's really interesting, but I also, I'm, I'm guessing you have an, an interesting perspective on it that probably differs from mine. Yeah, I actually got a couple of uh, emails and calls about this, and I, uh, I'm i intrigued by the dynamic of the privacy to security struggle war, if you will, when it comes to this. And, you know, with our particular unique setup here with MSU, with the college students that we do have in our community, that type of downtown that we do service, especially after hours, with the type of police force that we have 
um, and the type of policing that we want to do in the community. For me, um, my response to a lot of the people that I talked with was, I think this is a great step in the right direction. We've had an uptick in very violent crimes. Um, as we speak right now, we have a young man who's missing um, and we don't know uh, what's going on with him. Not to say that these cameras are the solution to some of the challenges that we face as a city um, and surveillance issues that come along with that. But I think with the particular locations and the reasoning and the type of camera system that they're going to employ, I do not think that this is something that is going to be on the side of a violation of privacy in a way that I think people are concerned about. And I definitely um, would be very concerned if we went further um, and employed more cameras um, in different places. Um, I definitely would have to see and understand um, a relative good reason for it. But I think with some of the different things that's happened over the summer, some different things we want to do as a city going forward uh, with some of the activities we want to do downtown, I think it gives us another layer of being able to kind of have a safe environment and open environment when it comes to uh, activity in our downtown. Yeah, I think that's a really good point of it's a layer of something and it's it's not at this point probably a very, you know, intrusive or, you know, big brother overreach thing. Big brother specifically was used at the meeting, so I don't want to throw that in on my own. Um, Al, I wanted to ask you just to about sort of your thoughts on that idea of knowing there's an extra layer of surveillance versus knowing that you're on camera and kind of what that balance. Yeah, honestly, just with the way that the world is, I kind of expect to... Um, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but to just be sur surveilled, you know, many places I go. And so that's fair. I, I, again, don't know if this is something everyone agrees with, but um, I don't have anything to hide. And if something were to happen to me or someone I was with or just downtown, you know, something happened while I was there, I think on some levels, it actually makes me feel safer. Um, but again, this is speaking from purely personal opinion and i have you know no expertise in this <laughs> realm yeah and i that's i think the the you got right at the the heart of part of the discussion too that there kind of isn't this expectation these days not to be on camera most places because you know you walk into an e-gas station and there you're probably on a security camera you walk into the grocery store you're on a security camera you're walking down the street you can be on somebody's phone camera i think that's the real that was brought up at the meeting by the city manager too, that, you know, anywhere you go, someone can realistically these days be taking a picture or video of you if you're out in public. Chuck, it seems like you. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add, I think, you know, you, you touched on the, the price, the cost. And I think that's something that if anything that I would really want to explore, I really want to make sure for this type of investment, I don't know what the numbers were. I can't remember off the top of my head. But it seemed like, you know, when it comes to some of the different things that we commit to, it, there doesn't seem to be very much diversity in comparison to getting to one thing to another from my observation on the outside looking in. And that would be the only thing I think comes to mind to me when it comes to maybe implementing this and, and going forward is this where and how did we come to this particular system, this particular cost of the system? What was the comparative of what has been done in other municipalities. Those are the questions that come to mind for me. And, you know, are there comparable cities that have done this? And what is some of the response to that? And how has it changed the dynamics of um, the community? 
Yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm most curious about, too, is what impact do these have, you know, a year after being up? Is it that there's maybe not fewer crimes downtown, but that more people get caught? Or does that then have the long term effect of more people? It deters crime or, you know, whatever activity, because I do think, you know, you have enough college age people and enough alcohol mixing together. You're not going to go throw a no hitter on crime most weekends, but I would be very curious to see what the actual changes or benefits are and like where, where that impact is really felt. Is it going to be felt downtown or is it just potentially going to lead to more arrests and maybe returned property and some slight tangential deterrent or will we actually see a true change downtown? I do think it's, it's, it's a good step. And I I'm, I'm curious like you too, to see what, what it actually leads to what the, the tangible benefit is. The last story I think we're really going to get to and really have time for today is about the Merritt Road property, its redevelopment, and so on and so forth. So this was a story that I wrote for Eli, and this was the, the property that was originally sold on eBay in 2019, and that is how it sort of first came to large public attention. This used to be the old Department of Public Works headquarters on 2040 Merritt Road. And what's happened now is the property then in 2019 was sold to be developed and the plan was to build a medical marijuana dispensary, a strip mall, and a hotel. And now the plan is to do that, but to do it in phases. And there was a subsequent lot split. So now a lot split is a rather pro forma thing. And if something fits the legal requirements, it just goes through. There's kind of no council can't decide not to approve it. But what they did approve is this phased development plan that calls for first the the construction of the medical marijuana dispensary, second the retail building which will have a drive-through for most likely a fast food restaurant and then phase 3 is the hotel. So what this kind of leaves the door open to is somebody just built like only the dispensary being built or only the dispensary and the retail building being built because Effectively, what happens if the developers further down the line default or, or fail to, to get something in on time or are not sort of minding their P's and Q's and dotting the I's and crossing the T's as they're going ahead, the site plan and the special use permit get nixed. And so if they've built one building and then they fall short on the next, everyone walks away and the plan would they could submit new plans for redevelopment. So another complicating factor, and maybe not complicating, but layer to consider is that there's also a, another dispensary right there, um, Pleasantries, which is a recreational and medical dispensary. And I think that's kind of the fascinating part to me at this juncture. Um, I'm curious if either of you kind of wondering about that or have thought about that, because to my mind, there's not anywhere else in East Lansing where there's two dispensaries that close to each other. Yeah, I thought there was a, a stipulation in the code that there could only be so many feet or so much of a distance between dispensaries. And I don't know if the classification from medical to recreational is is the significant piece that changes that. But I thought there was something that was self-built in already through our city ordinance or resolution to these uh, developments. There are, there are setbacks, and actually, uh, I was looking at a letter earlier today that was sent to city council from the owner of Pleasantries about how the setbacks got changed when they were trying to get up into operation and 
how basically there's another there's kind of another provision about how there's not supposed to be so many dispensaries or something working in an area so as to sort of like this is the weed the marijuana district so i don't think that a medical dispensary up the road from a, a recreational medical dispensary with costco right across and a major highway right there necessarily constitutes that but it i think you do raise a, a point that was raised by the owner of pleasantries to city council in a letter about having another dispensary so close and what that impact is and i know there's some housing around there and it's a logical spot for a business like that you have saginaw highway right there but i think that's an interesting point that will play out because again the first development to come is the dispensary al do you have any any thoughts on this I know. I don't know anything about the codes, um, but you know, I would guess that it being medical versus recreational is making up for the difference. But I, you know, I'm very new to this area and I've never lived anywhere where this has even, you know, come up where, you know, it's legal. So I think that it's interesting to see these growing pains that cities and, you know, towns have to go through as they figure this kind of stuff out for such a new industry. That's a good point. I've kind of gotten, I've gotten so used to it being here, but that is a fair point that it's still quite a new industry and quite a, mm-hmm. uh, a growing thing and, and growing pains is the perfect word for it. Um, we're pretty much running out of time here. We've gotten to everything we want to get to. Is there anything you guys, any parting thoughts, any big news? birthdays pet birthdays no parting thoughts but i just want to thank al for coming in and and giving us time to speak with her and her reporting and uh it's very good for the community to have this information out there yeah thank you guys for having me yeah of course it was wonderful to have you on we'll bring you back i'm sure in six months and you'll be a a zoning and (laughs) marijuana law i'll know all the things yeah al chuck thanks again so much for coming on and taking this time today um my name is Andrew Graham, this has been another episode of the East Lansing Insider, a news podcast brought to you by Impact 89FM. Thanks again for listening. East Lansing Insider is brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. We are on the web at eastlansinginfo.news and impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening.